So this morning, uh, I get the privilege of finishing up our four-part sermon series on the scriptures. Uh, As uh, you guys can see um, up on the screen, this is our Statement of Faith's article on the scriptures. So it says, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments were given by inspiration of God. Therefore, all scripture is authoritative, infallible, and without error, and the scriptures are the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. So this is the last of our four weeks where we're teaching on our statement of faith and why we hold to that. Uh, so first, Chet addressed the first sentence in it. So the scriptures of the Old and New Testament were given by inspiration of God. Chet preached on that a couple weeks ago. Then he preached um, on the second sentence Uh, the following week, how scripture is authoritative, infallible, and without error because it is given to us by the inspiration of God. And then last week, Caleb took it a step further from what Chet was showing because Chet was showing how the biblical authors themselves communicated that that is how we should view scripture. So the biblical authors themselves acknowledged that those things are true. Last week, Caleb took it a step further and showed how Christ himself taught the exact same thing. And then we come to this final week, my opportunity to preach, and I'll be preaching on the final sentence, addressing the fact that the scriptures are the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. So that's what we'll be considering this morning. And like the other parts of our statement of faith, We don't want you to simply take our, the elders, word that it's true. We want you to see that our view of the sufficiency of Scripture comes from the Bible itself. Therefore, we don't want you to just start with a doctrinal statement and try to find a proof text for it. You can, one can prove almost any statement by taking a passage out of context or by doing some interpretive gymnastics of their own. Uh, You can find a proof text and twist it to say most anything that you want. So we don't want to do that. What we want to do instead is to consider what the Bible already teaches us on the subject in numerous places throughout Scripture, and then create a doctrinal statement based on those teachings. We want the text to define our doctrine, not the other way around. So what, what I want you to see this morning Um, is that the Bible reveals a lot about itself. And much of what it reveals helps us to understand sufficiency, which is the the subject that we're dealing with this morning. So we're going to be looking at a lot of passages this morning. I just want to give you guys a heads up. We are looking at a lot. And so you're going to want to rifle through your through your Bibles pretty rapidly this morning. Um, We're not just going to plant our feet in one text. There is one that we're going to be talking about later that really is a good anchor for what we're talking about, but we're going to be looking at lots of different passages, so you want to be ready with your Bibles. But like I said, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages, and you will see that in light of them all, the only reasonable conclusion that we can come to is that scriptures really are the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. So the way that I'm going to be structuring this time and to establish that truth is that we're going to be considering a couple of things that the Bible teaches about itself. Um, And if those things are true, then we must see that it is our only sufficient rule for faith and practice. And so we're going to look at four different points or characteristics that Scripture has. So just to let you know what they are in advance, the first one is that the Bible is uniquely necessary for us. And that is to say that it's not, it's an, um, it and it alone is something that we need apart from all other things. And that's, we need that if it's going to be our only sufficient rule for faith and practice. We're also going to see that the Bible is clear, that it's understandable, that it's accessible to us. If it's going to be sufficient, if it's going to be enough for us, if it's going to be adequate, we need to be able to understand it. Um, we're also going to be considering that the Bible is finished, that it's a completed work, that it is not ongoing. Um, It's also not going to be sufficient if we're still waiting for more to be given to us. And finally, we're going to be looking at how the Bible is comprehensive in its teachings on faith and practice. Uh, Also, it's not going to be sufficient for us if it's lacking in some ways. 
And so we're going to be looking at each of those characteristics of the Bible, and we're going to see how the Bible teaches that each of those things are true. So first, let's consider how the Bible is uniquely necessary for us. So to say that the Bible is uniquely necessary means simply that we need it in a way that is unlike anything else. Now think about Jesus' own words when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. Uh, You can begin turning there to this passage. This is in Matthew 4. We're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4. And you can follow along with me as I read the different passages. You guys are going to get very well acquainted with where things are at in your Bible this morning, if you're not already. So, Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4 say this. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus is in the wilderness, he's been fasting, he's hungry, and Satan has tempted him to use his power, powers that Satan knows he has, to turn bread or turn stones into bread so that he might eat something. And pay attention to how Jesus responded to that. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 right here. And he's directly addressing the necessity of the written word of Scripture, uh, which Chet has already shown comes from the mouth of God by way of inspiration, as he talked about in his first sermon. And pay attention to what he's saying here. He isn't saying that we don't need food. Obviously, our bodies will fail without it. But what he is saying is that even more important than our bodily life is eternal life which can only be found and sustained through the teachings of Scripture. Jesus shows how true it is, how true that is by his own actions in quoting Scripture each time that Satan tempts him. He tempts him three times in this passage um, in the ongoing verses. And every time Jesus responds with Scripture to guard against the temptations that Satan is giving him, to counteract them, to, to fight back against them. Um, to battle the sin and temptation, Jesus turns to the word. He doesn't turn to his own physical well-being and making sure he's nourished and ready to go. He's showing how much we need the word by demonstrating his own reliance and obedience to it. And that makes sense when we consider all that scripture is. Think back to what Chet and Caleb Caleb have already showed us in their previous sermons. The Bible is infallible and inerrant. It is the very word of God himself. He has intentionally given us every single word found in it. It is his own speech, and it is 100% authoritative, infallible, inerrant, reliable, trustworthy, all of these things. It is good and right for us. The prophets and the apostles and Jesus himself esteemed it above all else. Nothing else is like it. And Jesus shows us that in Matthew 4, that nothing else is necessary for us like it is. It's uniquely necessary. But let's look at another passage. Consider Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. So you want to turn there now. I'll give you guys a moment. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as, superior, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the ESV Study Bible does a really good job of just summing up what this passage is saying. The Study Bible says it this way, Jesus is the final and definitive revelation. 
He is greater even than the Old Testament because he's the very son of God, the agent of creation, the true and complete manifestation of God's glory and radiance and nature, the one who has once and for all purified us of our sins, and he is far superior to angels. And notice that the passage does not just draw a distinction. It doesn't form a dichotomy between the written word and the word made flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. It doesn't form a dichotomy there. This is because Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures, as Caleb pointed out last week. Revelation and redemption go hand in hand here. And Hebrews is acknowledging that. We need both. Think about it. If we did not have the revelation of Scripture that testified to the redemption that was achieved through Christ on the cross, how would we believe and partake of that redemption? Paul addresses that very question in Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. So keep your finger in Hebrews, because we're going to come back to this, but also take a look at Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. Excuse me, sorry. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. Paul writes this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul's answer is simple. We need the word because through it, we learn about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Redemption and revelation are both necessary because we wouldn't know what redemption to hope in if we had no revelation that taught us about that redemption. And that it's the same line of thinking that the author of Hebrews has. That's why Hebrews starts as it does, claiming that Christ is the final and definitive revelation, and then it progresses on as it does. So it makes that statement, it concludes by saying, yes, he is the final and definitive revelation, he is superior to the angels even, it quotes a couple passages from the Old Testament proving that to be true. And then look at the beginning, beginning of chapter two. Look at Hebrews two, verses one through three, the first part of verse three. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, that, is, that being the biblical testimony of Christ's redemption, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, so they're talking about the Old Testament here, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The biblical testimony that we have of Christ's death and resurrection is the great salvation that this passage is talking about. The author of Hebrews is warning us to pay closer attention to not only the Old Testament, but even more importantly, to the inspired New Testament testimonies of Christ because they teach us of the great salvation that we have in him and what his will is for us in light of that. The author warns us that if we, if we ignore them, we will drift away and face the same just retribution that comes to those who are not united with Christ, who are not followers of him, who are still dead in their sin. We cannot hope to persevere and partake of eternal life without the scriptures and the truths contained in them. General general revelation is not enough. Um, The Westminster Confession addresses this topic very eloquently, as it does on pretty much everything, and it says this, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, as to leave men unexcusable, which that's taken pretty much straight from Romans 1, yet are they not sufficient to give knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. We cannot see just by looking at nature, by looking at providence and the creation around us, that does not tell us that Jesus Christ 
God and man came to earth and died on the cross for our sins, though he was righteous himself, and that in dying on the cross, he paid for our sins, and he was raised again three days later to prove that he did conquer sin, and he paid the debt that we owe. Creation doesn't tell us that. We need scripture to teach us that truth and reality. And that's what we need for salvation. That's what we rest our hope and faith in. Scripture is the only revelation that teaches us such things. It alone guides us in the faith and practice. And all other guides are only useful as far as they are aligned with it. It is uniquely necessary for us. But the Bible doesn't just stop there when it teaches us about itself. It also teaches that not only is it unique and necessary for us, but it is also accessible to us or that it's clear which is the next truth that we want to consider. So think for a moment how horrible it would be if we couldn't understand what the Bible said. I know for myself that I can sometimes take for granted the fact that we are not only free to study the word for ourselves, but we are actually, as individuals, expected to do so. We're expected to go to the word and to study it and to know it and to learn from it. But that has not been true throughout history. During many centuries, the Catholic Church in Rome taught that lay people, those who were not priests or monks or nuns, um, they could not rightly understand Scripture for themselves. They were told that they needed to rely upon the priesthood to help them access and understand the Bible. The Pope needed to be the one to interpret it for them, And they could only learn from it as so far as the priests taught it to them. That's why even today, um, I grew up in occasionally attending a Catholic church. And even today, you will oftentimes go into a Catholic church and you won't see any Bibles in the pews. You'll see hymnals, but you won't see any Bibles. Like I said, take a moment to consider how horrible that would be if we... If, it, if, we, if we were to understand that we could not learn from the Bible for ourselves, if we could not go to it when we are struggling or when we have questions and learn from it for ourselves. Many people throughout history have been told that they couldn't do that, that they couldn't go to it, that it was not clear and understandable to them. It would be like being poisoned and having no access to the antidote, even though it exists, because it's like locked in some safe and you don't have the code to get into it. If the Bible is not clear, then the message of redemption that is contained within it cannot be read and understood and responded to by faith. Or maybe at best it can only be done so to a limited degree. We would have no way of knowing that Jesus Christ died for our sins and we would have no way of knowing how we are called to live in obedience to him in light of that. In other words, if the Bible is not clear to those who would follow it, then it is not sufficient for us. As I have already said, though, the Bible is not unclear about its own clarity. It assures us that it is not hidden, that it's not secret, that it is not inaccessible to us um, who, who believe. The overall message of the Bible is plainly understood by all who have ears to hear it. There's no hidden key or secret to it besides simply the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So let's look at some passages that really speak to this. Um, I want you to turn to John 5, verses 37 through 42. So we're going to be looking at what Jesus himself says um, concerning this. So, this is Jesus talking to the Jews. He says this. This is John 5, 37 through 42. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
So as I said, Jesus is speaking to the Jews here. These are those who are questioning him, who are rejecting him, who are trying to combat against him and his teachings. And he's pointing out two key ideas that I want you to, to notice here. So first, as verse 39 shows, the scriptures do in fact bear witness to Christ and those who can understand them will come to know him. Jesus himself says that. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So, um, Jesus is not criticizing the Jews for searching the scriptures to have eternal life. That's the right thing to do. That's not what he's criticizing them for. They do testify to him. However, and this is point two that I want you guys to notice, they will not understand even though they search because they have never heard God and his word is not abiding in them. That is what Jesus's critique of them is, that the word of God is not abiding in them. They're not truly seeking after God. Jesus is teaching the Jews that if their hearts were truly seeking after him, they would find and learn of Christ as they read the scriptures. However, they will not see and understand God if they search the scriptures because their hearts are opposed to him. He's telling them that the reason that they are rejecting him, Jesus, is that they don't rightly understand the scriptures, which is evidence itself that their hearts have been in opposition to God all along. But consider also the opposite side of the coin that the Bible also presents here. So look with me at Deuteronomy 4, verses 27 through 31. These are the words of Moses. He says, in Deuteronomy 4, verses 27 through 31, he says, And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these, all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. God promises that when the Israelites finally reject their idols and search again for him, with all their hearts and with all their souls, he will reveal himself to them because he is a merciful and faithful God. Now look at Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. I told you guys we're going to be looking at tons of passages. Um, so Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11 so this is Jesus talking in. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus assures um, the disciples here that if they, as children of the Father, if they are seeking him and his will, he will surely respond and answer them. And like in the Deuteronomy passage, Jesus is rooting this promise in God's compassion and mercy, and faithfulness, and goodness to his children. And one more passage to, to look on this subject. Consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13. 
in this passage, Paul is writing about the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. And he's saying how different the wisdom of God is compared to the wisdom of man and how much better it is. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13, he says this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The point of all of this is that God, in his mercy and grace, grants clarity to all who genuinely seek him in his word. And we know that because as Jesus says in John 14 through 17, we haven't looked in these chapters yet. Um, We're going to be looking at some verses later. But in John 14 through 17, during his upper room discourse, Jesus says that the Father will send the Holy Spirit who will teach us by his word and bear, bear witness in our hearts to Christ. That is what Paul is writing about in this passage that we just looked at. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee that we can know and understand the message of Christ found in his scripture for salvation. That does not mean that all Christians will understand all scripture equally well and that all of its its teachings will come easily to us and without any effort. That's not what it's saying. But it does mean that we need not fear that God will withhold a necessary truth for faith and practice from us. If we truly seek understanding so that we might walk with him, he will bring clarity by the work of the Holy Spirit as we read and meditate on his scriptures. Just like the veil separating the Holy of Holies was torn in two at Jesus' death to show that he provided a way to God, God also makes his word accessible to his people so that we might draw near to him. So the scriptures are clear and they are understandable to those who would hear and respond to them. That is important considering that we're claiming that Scripture is the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. If it's not clear, then we can't make that claim. We also could not claim that if the Bible is not finished yet. So that's what we're going to be considering next in our third point. So when I say that the Bible is finished, I mean that it's completed, that there will not be any more revelation that we will receive from God that's to be added to the Bible. The canon is closed, and God will give no more inspired and authoritative writings by way of prophets or apostles that the church needs to understand and walk with him. That does not mean that God no longer is active in our lives. Far from it, God is not silent. He communicates through his word to us. He convicts our hearts by his spirit. He is extremely active in our lives. But... It does mean that he has given us all the special revelation that he intends to give us and that the Holy Spirit will use what has already been given to us to teach and to train and edify us in the truth. So how do we know that? There's a couple passages that do do communicate this to us pretty clearly. So look with me at Jude, um, verse 3. It's just one chapter. So Jude 1, verse 3. Jude says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is writing about the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints, um, as it says at the end of that verse. Not only is Christ's redemptive work completed, but so is the revelation of it as delivered to the saints by way of the apostles. Jude goes on to say in verse 17 that the church should remember the predictions of the apostles. The faith that Jude is calling the church to contend for is the faith that was handed down by the apostles through their writings and teachings. Jude wrote this during the time of the apostles because he understood that they would be the final final authoritative revealers of God's will and testimony of Jesus Christ. But 
We don't have to take just Jude's word on this. This wasn't only his opinion. Christ himself taught the same thing during his upper room discourse um, shortly before his death. So turn to John 14. We're going to look at verses 25 and 26. So this is John 14, verses 25 and 26. Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is speaking specifically to the apostles here. There wasn't anyone else with them and says that the Holy Spirit will come to them, to them specifically, the apostles, and teach them all things and make sure that they remember all that Christ taught them while they were his disciples, while they were walking with him and learning from him. The Holy Spirit will bring back to remembrance all that Christ taught them when he was with them. And Jesus says more later on in the upper room discourse as well. So maybe turn a page to uh, John 16, Verses 13 through 15. Again, this is John 16, verses 13 through 15. Jesus again speaks and says this. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is again telling the apostles specifically that the Holy Spirit will declare to them the things that are to come. The Spirit will take all that was Jesus's to reveal and he will give it to the apostles. The Spirit will, will withhold nothing from them. And what comes... What comes with that is the implicit understanding that the apostles are to declare those things to others for the good of the church, to build them up, to teach them of what Christ has come and done and who he is and what following him looks like. So you do, do you see how this teaches us about the finished nature of Scripture? Jesus himself taught that nothing authoritative or necessary would come after the apostles. All the teachings that one would need to know Christ and to walk with him were given to those apostles by him, and then they would be brought back to their recollection by the Holy Spirit so that, again, they, the apostles, could give those teachings to the church. And they did so through their own writings and through the writings of those who they themselves permitted to record them. So we see that the, and we see that as well in the apostles' own understanding of Scripture and their writings themselves. So I'm going to flip towards the end, Revelation 22. We're going to look at what John wrote at the end of the book of Revelation. This is Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19. Just two verses. So John, um, John says in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So John explicitly states that no one is to add to the prophecy and the words of this book. Now, one could argue that John was only referring to the book of Revelation itself and not to the Bible as a whole. I mean, he is referencing the plagues and the tree of life and the holy city that are communicated and talked about specifically in Revelation. Um, but the issue with that is that Revelation it goes more than that. It communicates more than that. The issue is that Revelation repeatedly states that Jesus will come soon. In other words, that these are the words of the last days. 
There is this implicit truth communicated throughout the entire book of Revelation that this is the final prophecy. Plus, we know enough about church history from that time period to know that John himself must have known that he was the final living apostle. He knew that his book would conclude the apostolic writings and therefore the inspired authoritative word of God given to man. He probably did not know exactly how the apostolic writings would be collected and affirmed alongside with the Old Testament one day as the whole biblical text of the Council of Nicaea that came about almost 250 years later. So I'm sure that John didn't didn't know exactly how that was going to happen. But surely he knew that however it would happen, no writings after his would be able to be recognized as scripture. They did not come with the authority of the inspiration of God given to the apostles uniquely. He was writing the final chapter of the Bible and he knew it. The closing remarks in Revelation are not only applicable to the book itself, but also to the entire Bible as well. He would not have added that line otherwise, or if you think about it, he would have included a line like that in his letters when he wrote his letters, but he doesn't. He writes it at the end of Revelation. He knows this is the end, not only of the book of Revelation, but the end of the inspired word of God. And that is hugely significant to know because our Bibles are definitely not sufficient if we're still waiting on more scripture to be given to us. As we have just seen, though, that's not the case. Revelation, God's special revelation to us, not just the book of Revelation, but revelation is complete because redemption is complete. Christ's work is done, and it has been revealed to us fully in the teachings of the apostles and their recorders. So what we have can be sufficient, but is it? What if what we need for faith and practice isn't a kind of writing, but something else? What if we need more than what we have here? Maybe this is most of what we need, but maybe it's not all of what we need. Those types of questions address the comprehensiveness of Scripture. And we would need Scripture to be comprehensive on faith and practice for us to claim that it is the only sufficient rule for that. So that's finally what we're going to look at and what the Bible has to say about it. So this brings us to the crux of what it means for Scripture to be a sufficient rule for faith and practice. If Scripture is enough in that regard, if, they, if Scripture is enough for us, for us, if it's more than enough even, it must tell us all that we need to believe and all that we need to do to walk with God. It must be comprehensive in that regard. And unsurprisingly, the Bible does speak to this. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3, Verses 14 through 17. Though we have looked at a ton of different passages already this morning, this passage is really our anchor. It brings much of what we've already, what's already been said in a lot of other passages, and it kind of sums much of it up in one remarkable statement. It's in many ways the embodiment of what the Bible teaches regarding its own sufficiency. And I've waited until now to bring it up because I want you to see how true that is after looking at all of the other passages and what they teach about God's, how much we need scripture and how clear it is and how it is finished, basically how sufficient it is. So follow along with me as I read 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or competent in some versions of the ESV equipped for every good work. So look at verse 15. It says that the sacred writings will make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. 
Not only that, but verse 16 says that all of scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, um, for training in righteousness. All of that speaks to the scripture's place as a rule for faith for us. It tells us what our hope is in, what our faith is in, namely Jesus Christ. It will make one wise in that matter, again, as it says. Paul would not say that if Scripture was insufficient in any way. And pay attention to also what it says about being a rule for practice. In verse 16, it says that Scripture is profitable for training in righteousness along with teaching and reproof and correction. And look at verse 17. It is profitable, profitable such that it, would, it will make a man complete or competent, as I said, equipped for every good work. Notice the every there. It's not just some good works. It's not just most good works. It is every good work. The man will be complete. If it makes us complete for every good work, it must be comprehensive. That's what the word, would, that's what the word means. That's how you would define Comprehensive. But think about Psalm 119. Psalm 119, if you want to read a passage in Psalms that just amazingly and beautifully communicates how precious Scripture is and how good and right and comprehensive and valuable it is, just read through Psalm 119. It's, an ex- it's a very long psalm, but I, I just wanted to point out two verses. I want to point out verses 1 and verse 6. So Psalm 119 verse 1 um, says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. And so he's saying, the author here is saying, those who walk in the law of the Lord are also those whose way is blameless. And verse 6, look down at that. It says, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. So those who walk according to God's word are blameless and they have no reason for shame. That could only be true if the word tells us all that we need to know and to do um, to follow God. But also consider consider Psalm 19, what it says um, in, in that psalm about what scripture does in our lives, the impact it has on us, its ability to guide and to transform us. Psalm, psalm 19 communicates how it revives our souls, how it rejoices our hearts, how it makes wise the simple. Scripture is comprehensive and it is sufficient to be all that we need in times of despair, in times of confusion and chaos, in times when we don't know what's right and what's wrong and our hearts are weak and sad, um, Scripture is enough to comfort our souls. It's enough to build us up and to remind us of truth, to guide us through that uncertainty and confusion that we might have. I know I'm not the only one that has experienced seasons of life like that. And I know I'm not the only one who, when experiencing those seasons, we want to look to something to make us feel better, to bring clarity in that confusion, to give us just direction. And so often we're prone to look at things other than the word. We're so prone to look at things other than the Bible to provide that for us. We'll think, oh, if I'm, if I'm struggling, maybe, I just, maybe it's just I just need more sleep or I need something else. It's like those things aren't bad. They're good and we should do those things. But... God tells us, he promises that his word will revive our souls. It will make wise the simple. It will rejoice our hearts. And so let's trust that it is sufficient to do that work in our hearts, to transform us, to be that comfort when we need it, and be that direction when we need guidance on how to live. The scripture that we have is comprehensive in that it tells us what we need to know for both faith and practice. It calls us to do all things to the glory of God and it equips us to do just that. When we fail to glorify God, it's not because scripture's insufficient. It's because we are forsaking what it says. The Bible tells you all that you need to know to fulfill your present responsibilities to God. 
Now, obviously, that does not mean that Scripture gives us all knowledge for all things. It's not exhaustive, it's comprehensive. So it's not going to teach you about the specific details of human anatomy. It's not going to teach you calculus. Um, But that does not detract from its sufficiency and value to us. Because Because it is comprehensive in matters of faith, then from it we can learn all that we need to know about God, our relationship with him, and our duties before him. It isn't going to make you an expert in dentistry, per se, but it will teach you how to be a godly man or woman as you study that field, as you perform it as a dentist, and as you try to grow um, as a dentist and in your practice. And that's what's ultimately most important. That's what God's looking for. That's what God desires. That's what brings him glory. And if you think about it, that's still a tremendous amount of guidance and direction that he gives us. It teaches you how to think about your job, what you're responsible for in this life, how to behave in private and with others. It teaches you what goals are worth aspiring to and what professional integrity is, what just integrity is in general. Um, It helps you prioritize your decisions in life and it helps you make those decisions both in and outside of work. Um, in all spheres of life. So no, Scripture doesn't tell you exactly what to do in every specific decision you're going to make in this life. But we don't need more specific direction from God in order to walk with him or else he would have provided it to us. That is part of the beauty of the sufficiency of Scripture. It reminds us that we can bring God's glory, that we can bring God glory and honor in our lives, and in our earthly responsibilities, even when we don't know everything. We don't have all the information in the world, but that's okay. Even if you aren't an expert, the top in your field, maybe you're new to motherhood or a a new calling that you've embarked on in life. That doesn't mean you must be failing to obey and walk with God because you're not an expert and you know everything about it. Devote yourself to his word, and he will show you how to follow him even in your uncertainty and in your shortcomings. Take joy in knowing the word is comprehensive on matters of faith and practice. So much more could be said regarding the comprehensiveness of Scripture, just like much more could be said on all the other things that we've looked at this morning. Now, though, I want us to consider all four points that Scripture teaches about itself and put them all together. So first, as we've already looked at, Scripture is uniquely necessary for us because it allows, it, it alone reveals to us Jesus Christ, his redemptive work, and his will for man. Second, Scripture is clear to those who seek God so that we might understand the gospel message and live in light of it. Third, Scripture is finished and we await no more revelation from God. And fourth, Scripture is comprehensive in matters of faith and practice. So if we consider all of those teachings that the Bible has about itself, if we can put all of those together into one statement, we have this, that the finished scriptures of the Old and New Testaments alone teach us clearly and comprehensively on matters of faith in Christ and practice before God. In other words, we have our statement of faith and what it says. Scriptures are the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. The Bible is unlike anything else in that it tells us all that we could need to believe in our Lord and devote our lives to him. It alone is able to encourage us like it does, comfort us like it does, convict us like it does, correct us and equip us like it does through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it does all of that because it turns our eyes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because the reality is, if he had not fulfilled prophecy by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again three days later, the Bible would be worthless to us. But he did fulfill the prophecies. He did die on the cross. He was raised three days later. And so the Bible is precious and should be treasured for what it teaches us of him and what he has accomplished and what our relationship with him is like. 
Friends, our reflecting on the sufficiency of Scripture should compel us to reflect on Christ and rejoice in his sufficiency as our Savior. We need it because we need him. We have access to God because the gospel message is clear and accessible to us and because Christ made a way for us to God. The Bible is finished because Jesus himself cried, it is finished on the cross as he paid the price for our sins. And the Bible is comprehensive because our Savior did everything for us that we could not do for ourselves. We've looked at a lot of passages in the Bible this morning so that we could see that Scripture is the only sufficient rule for faith and practice. So let's rejoice in that fact and devote ourselves to its study and practice. It's good and true for our souls. Let's persevere when it seems burdensome and dull. God will make it clear and life-giving if we persist. Let's treasure it. Let's make it a priority to share that message with those who don't know it. Maybe you're sitting here and you're realizing that you're one of those people who don't know what the Bible teaches about Christ and what he has done for us. If that's you, I ask you to, to approach me or someone else after service so that we can explain to you what the Bible does teach about Jesus Christ. It's a glorious truth and reality. But also, let's work to see the Bible translated into all languages so that all people might know and to learn of Christ from it. There are so many languages in the world who don't have the Bible translated for them yet. So we want to support that ministry and that work that's, being go- that's ongoing. And finally, let's delight ourselves in the God who it reveals to us. Let's long for the day when the Bible's words will become sight, when its promises will be realized, and we will stand before that Lord and Savior who it teaches us of, who is incredible and incomparable and beyond understanding as we stand before him in praise and worship forevermore. Let's long for that day as we look to the word and learn of him.